Hey everybody, this is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Today I wanted to release another recording of a lecture that I think you'll find really interesting. This one is from the 2022 Curious About Cannabis Masterclass. This is Reggie Godino's talk on um, addressing a whole bunch of critical questions around cannabis genetics. And basically I'd given Reggie a whole list of what I thought were interesting questions that people wanted answers for related to cannabis genetics. And he went through them and answered most of them. And it was a really great talk. Reggie's also going to be joining us again for the 2023 masterclass. So if you're interested in learning with me and over a dozen special guests, including Reggie and others, um, consider signing up. We've only got a few spots left. Um, I'm almost 100% certain this masterclass for this year is going to sell out probably within the next couple of weeks um, of this releasing. So if you want to get in on that, go to masterclasscannabis.com. Um, if that doesn't work for you, you can always go to cacpodcast.com slash events and find information about our upcoming events there. But I'd love to learn with you. Our masterclass is six months long. It's an intensive crash course in cannabis science, and it's a lot of fun. And it doesn't matter if you have a science background or anything like that. Beginners are welcome. So come learn with us. We got payment plans available. Scholarships are available that you can apply for. Um, so we've really tried to make this as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. So, um, yeah, with that, let's dive into this lecture. I hope you enjoy it. And if you want to learn more, like I said, that's at masterclasscannabis.com or cacpodcast.com slash events. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. Curious About Cannabis is dedicated to providing reliable cannabis science education to anyone curious enough to learn. To get access to free courses and other educational resources, visit learn.cacpodcast.com and become a Curious About Cannabis member for free. Or upgrade your membership for only $5 and get access to our resource library that contains pretty much every bit of content we've ever produced plus access even more courses as well as completion certificates so you can go show off your progress to your friends and, of course, your prospective employers. The Curious About Cannabis book provides an incredible crash course in cannabis science through over 500 pages of content filled with photos, activities, science experiments, games, and more to help guide you through your personalized cannabis education journey. This book has become a trusted textbook in colleges and universities across North America and is absolutely perfect for serious learners, as well as cannabis educators, bud tenders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers. And if you want to help us spread reliable cannabis science education to the masses, pause this podcast right now, go to our YouTube channel, and subscribe. YouTube is the number two search engine in the world next to Google, and of course Google owns YouTube. So by subscribing to our channel on YouTube and liking our videos and sharing them, you're helping our content reach more people, furthering our mission to spread reliable cannabis science education far and wide to anyone curious enough to learn. And finally, special thanks to the many, many people, companies, and organizations that have come together to help Curious About Cannabis become the number one trusted resource in cannabis science education. This includes organizations like The Workshop, 
Green Earth Medicinals, Credo Science with Ethan Russo, The Spellman Report with Kevin Spellman, and many others. It means a lot that we have gathered the trust and respect of so many really incredible scientists and science forward organizations. So go check them out and give them some love while you're at it. And now let's get on with the show. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks for, for everybody to come in and, and listen. I, I generally ramble a lot. I'll try not to do that. So <laughs> we're going to cover a number of topics today um, or a number of questions. These were the questions that when I asked Jason, I'm like, dude, like, what is it that people want to hear me talk about? He was like, well, maybe some of these topics. So um, that was very helpful. And so we're going to cover some of these things today, uh, depending on the time. And um, we're going to start with the genes associated with cannabinoids and terpenoids. So, um, and um, I'm going to start with this because it gives an idea of of what we're really talking about here. So the 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 genes that are in that little I don't know. Can you see my my cursor here? So the genes in this yeah. little yellow or golden circle, or what was supposed to be a circle. Um, are what typically we think about when we think about the cannabinoid synthase pathway, pathway, right? Um, and and you know, so we have the THCAS, CBDAS. You know, these produce THC CBD. There's also a CBCAS, and and that's illustrated here on the right. It's a little bit more um, uh, fleshed out for the cannabinoid synthases. And you can see that uh, the same genes that give us THC and CBD give us THCV, CBDV as well, right? And CBCV. So, so you know, you you automatically you get a a num a different set of compounds from the same genes just by altering the the gene that the, or the the precursor that goes into um, the the actual reaction, right? So, but now that begs the question: so where do these things come from, right? And the 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 main important thing that we want to talk about here is GPP because this is, in fact, the bottleneck of cannabinoid and, and terpene synthase um, um, production, right? So both GPP are used as a precursor in making cannabinoids and terpenes. Uh, and, and, and I will probably refer to um, the, the larger group as terpenoids. Both cannab cannabinoids and terpenes are fallen to the terpenoid class. Um, in fact, if you wanted to, to, to talk about cannabinoids correctly, they would be Either di or tricyclic diterpenes, right? So that's that's exactly what a a cannabinoid really is, right? So the part that people don't really understand is is that you know so yes you have this bottleneck and so you have two competing things happening you have the production of terpenes happening and you have the production of, of cannabinoids happening, but then you also have all of these other genes that are involved in feeder as a feeder pathway, right? So so it's kind of a misnomer to think about cannabinoid synthesis as just the cannabinoid synthases because you have all of these other precursor genes or, or rather precursor feeder pathway uh, genes that, uh, that have to be um, considered when you're when you go into making either terpenes or cannabinoids. Um, this is uh, because I didn't have a, a cool little diagram for the terpenes. Um, these are the genes that have been characterized so far that make terpenes, right? And so this comes from a paper that we were, were in the process of, of publishing. Um, and so there are a number of terpenes that are genes that have been identified, but we still don't know what they really make, right? So there's a whole bunch in here that have never been identified. 
Um, we know that they exist because we can find RNA for them, but we don't really know, you know, what some of these things are making, right? So, and so you can see that there are far more genes making terpenes, right, than there are making cannabinoids. And as an illustration of what I was talking about, about the feeder pathways, this is what the process kind of looks like. So everything starts from this little uh, compound here called isoprene, right? Um, and isoprene is made um, from the DMAPP pathway. It's made in the plastid, right? And then it is, through various other genes, turned into either uh, the GPP that makes monoterpenes, and then it's also shunted out so that it can make uh, cannabinoids. Right, but isoprene is also involved in a number of other um, pathways as well, right? So, so once you get it out here, you can make other types of terpenes, as with terpenes, homo, you know, um, homoterpenes. These are singles, um, and then you can make uh, through combining isoprene with other things, you 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 end up making a, a number of these other uh, compounds that are also very important for both the plant to survive and flower and do its, you know, um, the mainly volatiles, the jasminates, these are, these end up being some of the phytohormones that are responsible for change of phase, like when you go from vegetative growth to um, the, uh, you know, flowering growth. So it's a very complicated pathway, and that is better illustrated by this next slide, right, which is um, just a portion of what really happens inside the cell, right? So what we're looking at here is this just a portion of the pathway that's involved in what is essentially oil or fatty acid production, right? A lot of these genes here uh, and a lot of the genes involved in the cannabinoid synthase pathway are in fact involved in other aspects of, of uh, fat, oil, glyceride type of, of, of production. And as you can see from the previous slide, right? Some of these things are, you know, show up here um, and are, are then take those precursors and put them into, by changing them, um, you know, into other pathways as well, right? So, um, so now, as I said, this is just a, 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 a portion of what really goes on in the cell. These are all biochemical reactions that are actually happening in, in the cell to be able to produce some of these precursors. And if we take a look at the larger kind of organization, these are the sets of biochemical pathways, and it's important to understand that these are all biochemical pathways. These are all the biochemical pathways that are involved in cannabinoid and terpenoid synthase, right? So you have carbohydrate metabolism, you have the, the C4 glyoxylate cycle, you have lipid metabolism, um, you have, you know, and, and there's actually a lot of lipid metabolism you can see there's, you know, uh, and here's where the isoprene, oops, sorry, didn't mean to do that. This is where the isoprene start right here. Um, you have cofactors and vitamins that are involved, the, like the cofactors like the coenzyme A. So you saw um, a couple of slides back that you have hexanol-CoA, you have malonyl-CoA, which go into make GPP, right? So these are all, if you want to, to get down to the nitty gritty of what does it take to understand and study the cannabinoid and terpene synthesis or, or the, 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 the biosynthesis of the, the cannabinoid and terpenes, you have to start looking at a lot larger things than just, or a lot larger group of things than just the cannabinoid synthesis or the terpene synthesis. Okay, um, so um, maybe um, before I get too far, if there are any questions up to that point, I, I, I didn't wanna get into too much depth because this is very heavy biochemistry. 
Um, and some of it, I'm going to be honest, I, I have members of my team that actually correct me when I make a mistake. So, um, so I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but, but it's important to understand that there's a lot of things going on when you are actually dealing with making cannabinoids and terpenes. Yeah, no, I think this is, <clears throat> this is great because it connects to, um, some of the really, really, really high level um, biosynthetic pathway stuff that we've already talked about, you know, we've already covered a tiny bit about GPP and um, some of those pathways. So I think this is great in showing how this fits into the, the bigger picture. And I just want my students to know that I expect you to memorize everything on this map and be able to uh, uh, draw it up for me by the, the end of today. So. so, so for those of you who don't know, the, so you can actually find these, these maps at, um, if you Google Roche biochemical pathways, you'll get this current slide. And then if you minimize that slide far enough, you end up with this slide. So it's an interactive slide that allows you to zoom in and zoom out, zoom out so that you can understand how things fit together in terms of biochemical pathways. So it's it's it, really awesome. And you can get it printed and it's like a whole wall it size is, exactly. uh, yeah. poster. It's really cool. So all right. So we're gonna move next into how do we measure. Terp terpenoids. And so here I'm, I'm grouping the, them together. So, um, so generally, right, you measure uh, cannabinoids um, through a process of um, high pressure liquid chromatography or uh, liquid chromatography with mass spec detection, right? Um, and uh, th that's measuring the, the actual product made through the genes after expression through the pathway, right? So, um, and I'm sure it's not any secret to any of you already who have been in this class that, you know, there's a whole bunch of cannabinoids, right? But there's a whole bunch more compounds. So there's about 500 active compounds in cannabis, of which about 140 plus uh, are cannabinoids. So what does that actually mean, right? So um, it's a little bit of trickery and deceit. And I say that because um, it's, it's a cannabinoid body, right? So you have the ring structure, and then you have different tails of different lengths. We know, uh, you know, when we refer to CBD and THC, um, you know, we generally refer to the, the, the pentacannabinoid, right? So that means that it has a five carbon tail, right? The varins have a three carbon tail, but if you have a mass spec, right? And that's what this little, um, this little insert here is. If you have a mass spec, you can actually find that every cannabinoid body, which is again, the, the cyclic structure, right? Can be found with anywhere from zero carbons to nine carbon tails, right? So, so essentially that 144 carb, you know, 144 cannabinoids really is a collection of a cannabinoid body, either the THC body, which is um, tricyclic or the, the, the CBD body, which is dicyclic, um, um, you know, with either zero to nine tails. So that, that, that right there takes a, a fair amount, number of them. CBC exists the same way, right? Then you go and you have, um, um, you know, a number of other cannabinoids that are, are not even we don't even have marker or rather uh, references for, right? So we have like CBGAM, we have um, uh, a couple of other ones, THCPs. Now we have a marker, we have a, um, a, a reference standard for that. Um, and so, so we're beginning to find a, a number of these other 
um, modified cannabinoids, which look like they come, and again, it, the, the jury is still out on this because we haven't found the genes involved, but it looks like they come from secondary modification of those main cannabinoids with the zero to nine carbon tail, right? And then you can either acetylate them, you can either methylate them, you can, you know, you can do various things to them through other genes. And we, 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 hypothesize that, that there's these other genes, but nobody's actually found one of these other genes and said, hey, this is the gene that does this secondary modification to this, you know, THC molecule, right? So, um, but, um, you know, we, we do know from other plants and from other, looking at other compounds that there are a lot of common secondary uh, modification enzymes that do act on existing uh, protein structure, right? So, so it's not a, a far stretch, but they haven't been identified yet. So what we're looking at here is just a chemical uh, output, you know, uh, measured from, you know, the HPLC. But then what we've done here is we've taken kind of the same data, but from an, a mass spec, because you can see some of these, you know, rarer, you know, the C4s and some of these, uh, these rarer compounds. Um, and this has been expressed as a, as a um, heat map, right? And so, What's the purpose of a heat map? The heat map allows you to, you know, uh, do what we're doing here, which is if you look across the top here, these are all different varieties, right? And these are the compounds. And so you can actually do with this heat map, you can actually look at the relative abundance of the each of the cannabinoid compounds in the different varieties and compare them to each other. And so you can see some of them, like, you know, this is clearly a CBD producer, right? Um, Whereas the one next to it probably is not, but if you go up to THC, well, sure enough, that one makes a ton of THC, right? So, so this allows you to give get an idea of what the oil profile will contain in terms of the the major cannabinoids and the minor cannabinoids, right? So, so this is you know looking at uh, cannabinoids from the product in flower level. There's other ways to look at cannabinoids as well, right? And that's to look at the actual genes or RNA expression. So what you're looking at here, right, is work that was done where we um, did RNA isolation, um, and then we looked at the expression of each of the different genes um, that we were interested in. In this case, it was specifically cannabinoids. Um, by mapping to a reference genome and, and then determining this is how many total transcripts we found for each of these genes. Now, what you'll see here is that there's a whole bunch of genes that are cannabinoid genes that are not THC, CBD, or CBC, right? And some of them have fairly robust expression in the plant, right? So the way this was done is to take RNA, make cDNA from it, and then and then uh, sequence the cDNA, map the reads to a reference genome to give us a relative measure of abundance of each of these genes, or, or, or the, the relative abundance of expression of each of these genes, not the presence or absence, but actually how much they are making, right? Because there's the amount of cDNA that you can make from an RNA isolate is proportional to the number of copies you find of that RNA, right? So the more cDNA you see downstream, it means because you had more copies of that RNA in the beginning reaction, right? So now some of you should be saying to yourself, well, what the hell are these genes? Well, that's a great question because we're asking ourselves these, these same questions. As it turns out, 
the, the cannabinoid synthases exist as part of a larger family called the berberine bridge genes, right? And berberine bridge genes are, are, are known for a number of things throughout the plant kingdom. In fact, some of them make alkaloids like caffeine, um, uh, you know, the uh, um, opium, or not opium, but the, the starting compound to whatever you make from poppies, opium. Um, and so, uh, so there is a, a history of plants making a number of compounds that have later come out, turned out to be either medicinal or or recreational or whatever um, that that are come from the alkaloid family. And so, as it turns out, the cannabinoid genes are a member, an offshoot member uh, of this of this berberine bridge gene family. And in the cannabinoid synthases themselves, there's been a great deal of evolution that gives us. Uh, it's almost like you know nature is 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 trying to find new compounds, right? So it's it's kind of it duplicates, it uh, makes mutations, it tries them out, and if they are beneficial, it keeps them. If not, then you can see some of them have no expression whatsoever. So the ones that you see no expression have been turned into pseudogenes, and so they when we we do the DNA sequencing of these genes, we can actually see that there are in in insertions or deletions or stop codons or other reasons why that it doesn't make any active RNA. So. Uh, this is just another way to look at the overall transcript abundance, right? So, and then you can also do the same thing where you do a, a heat map of, and, and so what we've basically done here is we've taken, um, in, in this panel here, we've taken these reads, right? And then we've further separated them into where we found the reads, right? So if you look at, you, you have um, male flower, um, you have uh, pre-flower, you have shoot, stem, roots, right? And then you have, you know, um, and so you can actually see the different cannabinoid synthases, right? And so what we've done here is, so so here we've actually kind of, uh, it's a little bit difficult, but but these, these named uh, genes here show up here as these contigs, right? And so here you can see this is obviously THCA synthase. That's that one right there, right? Oops, sorry. Um, and so then what you do is you, you, you do a heat map based on where uh, the, the RNA was isolated from, and you can see how, uh, how prevalent the expression of that gene was in that tissue, right? So, and so you can see there are things that are made fairly heavily in the root, but they're not made anywhere else. And you can see things that are made in male flower, right? Um, that have more expression in male flower than in female flower, right? And you can see things that are made in um, the shoots and the stems as well, right? But, but to very low levels. So, so cannabinoids clearly are made throughout the plant, but they're not made to the same level throughout the plant. And it's not always the same cannabinoids that are being made in each portion of the plant. And, and, and I use cannabinoid here broadly, right? Because some of these genes here right? They have, they look like cannabinoid genes, they tend to act like cannabinoid genes, but we don't know what the product is, right? And so this is a heat map here. These could actually be something slightly removed from a cannabinoid, but they have a high homology, right? And by homology, we mean they look a lot like the canonical THC and CBD. In fact, all of these genes fall within about 75% similarity to these genes, the THC, CBD, and CBDS. The C CBDAS genes. Okay, so 
Um, moving on to the, the terpenes, the terpenes are done the same, more or less the same way. And so what we're looking at here is uh, an extended terpene profile. Um, and um, typically this is, uh, terpenes are not measured on an HPLC. They're measured on a, a GCMS, a gas chromatograph with mass spec detection. The reason why you need to do it that way is because terpenes um, have very, they all, well, monoterpenes all have the same exact molecular weight. Right. And so, so the problem becomes is that you can't really tell much by just their migration. Um, you actually have to be able to break them down, which is what a, a, a mass spec does. It, it, it sends ionized particles at the compound, it breaks it up. And it, because it breaks it up, it gives you a, um, um, a kind of, uh, a fragment pattern, right? And then that fragment pattern, based on, on the, the fragment sizes you see, allows you to get a better idea of what that compound really is. Because upon fragmentation, terpenes will fragment differently based on their bonds, right? So with that extra layer of detection, it allows you to get a very accurate detection uh, of, of the abundance of each of the terpenes, right? Um, and so this is just, you know, again, this is just the the product of the oil being measured from the flower, right? Um, but then what that allows you to do is actually to, to build plots like this so you can see what the abundance of, and it again, allows you to compare across varieties. So each of these colors is a different variety that has undergone the same process. And you can see how there's a great deal of difference in the terpenes. So the other thing I wanted to or, or, or the terpene oil profiles. The other thing I wanted to, to show is that there's different classes of abundance. You have a high abundance class of terpenes in all plants. You have a moderate class, and then you have a low class, right? And the difference between the high class and the low class is sometimes on the order of 10 or 100 fold, right? Difference, right? The interesting thing is, is that the terpenes here and here are sometimes just as effective or just as noticeable in terms of their odor as these terpenes here, right? So just because you find a lot of a certain terpene, it doesn't mean that it's giving you a predominant effect. So that's an important thing to remember. I so a question that just popped up that uh, go ahead. might be interesting to throw out right now is one of the students asked about enantiomers. Um, enantiomers, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and just the chirality issue around um, terpenes and, and how that kind of influences um, this investigation in general? So that's a great question. And so the majority of work done on terpenes today doesn't really take into effect chirality. And so, and, and, and it's an important consideration that, you know, because first of all, it, it's, it's hard to do chiral, chiral chromatography is a very difficult type of, uh, of undertaking. Um, and not many people are, are, are uh, that good at it in the in the cannabis space. It's it's actually something that's being considered now, and it's only being considered now because of some of the things that have been confusing people, right? So, um, you know, linalool, and which is um, uh, let's see, this terpene right here, right? Linalool has traditionally been um, identified as a sedative terpene, right? And so things that have linalool, especially if it's mixed with myrcene, tend to be, you know, what they call couch lock. Ironically, it was not until there was a slightly 
um, a slightly off-smelling plant that was found that tested as linalool because again the chirality, you know, if you're not if you're not measuring chirality, you know, the the two uh, the you know left and right-handed molecules will show up in the same place, and so. Um, it wasn't until somebody said, hey, this is linalool, but it's very energetic. What's going on here? And then that they, that they discovered that there was actually an L and an S linalool, right? And one of them is sedative and the other one is, is very uplifting, right? And it was at that point that people in the cannabis industry started to realize that chirality matter, matters and antimers actually matter. And so it, and I'd say in the last year or two, it has become a topic of, of more intense investigation. Um, so it's a great question. Um, and the same thing happens um, with, um, let's see, it's linalool. And then there's also... Um, it's an issue with limonene. Limonene, that's the one I was thinking about. Yes, thank you. So, 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 um, and so, and, and I'm sure we'll find more actually, right? And when you look at um, the, you know, any terpene that has a chiral center, right, is going to have this problem, right? And I think it's just a matter of time before we, we start to really understand that, right? But, it, but again, it's a great question because it's something that's only recently become, people have become aware of and started to study. Um, and, you know, a, a number of different methods have come out to try to look at that. The, the uh, two-dimensional and three-dimensional um, um, terpene analysis is, you know, it has, has become, um, and that's called GC by GC or GC by GC by GC, right? So, so, so these are ways where they're trying to get at um, being able to set, get better separation of potentially these chiral molecules um, because, you know, uh, chirochromatography. So there are in fact, you know, um, columns that, that are, that have a, have a, um, a matrix that is supposed to be, you know, better for separating chiral molecules. But again, you know, there's a lot of development work that goes into this. And, and I think what we've, we've seen is, is that it hasn't been something that's been um, taken up very, very fast. And, and, and it's partially the cannabis industry, right? So, so things like this um, early in the industry, and even, you know, right now where the, the focus is more on how much THC a product has, um, than, than how many, you know, different terpenes they have, right? Because I think, you know, the, the, the cannabis industry has been blindsided by the alcohol model. Um, you know, you know, it hasn't, you know, terpenes, you know, haven't really even been a, a major topic of conversation until recently. And if you look at most of the products on your shelves, products you can go find at a dispensary, you'll find that many of them pay very little lip service to terpenes at all, right? So, um, but it turns out that the experience that we all chase down is strictly formed by the terpenes, right? Where THC or CBD being a kind of a, a, a you know, kind of rheostat, and right? it's a volume switch, right? It's got a lot of terp, it's got a lot of THC, you'll, you'll, you'll have a more of that experience, right? But, you know, if it's got very little THC, you'll still have an experience because your body will still react the same way because of the terpenes. It'll just be how, how, how high is the high based on the terpenes, right? So, um, so I think, you know, the industry has a long way to go to understand the importance of the terpenes and, and kind of shift that, that discussion. 
Um, but th that was a really good question because it is something that that needs to be investigated and, and it's only starting to be investigated right now. So, um, okay, so moving on. So the next thing is, is this is a heat map of, of um, this is I think probably several thousand varieties that we looked at over time. And um, then they were clustered by their abundance, right? And so you can see here, um, you have a group that has a lot of myrcene. Um, you can see groups that have less myrcene. Um, sorry about that. Uh, groups that have, um, you know, no myrcene or very little myrcene, right? So the thing that's important here is to recognize is, is that you that there these um, hot and cold spots are indicative of a the presence or absence of genes, right? So anywhere you see nothing at all, so you can see there's a little line there, but there's nothing next to it. If you see a completely white area, that means that, that variety did not have that gene, right? And that's what the and that's one of the uses of analysis like this is, right? Because this tells you um, basically uh, by looking at the oil profile what you should expect in the DNA. So you know. If there is no signal whatsoever, either that gene is not present or something in the growing environment turns it off completely. That generally is not the case. If you if you have uh, a gene present, um, and you can see that in the um, in the cannabinoid synthase profile as well, if the gene is there and it's functional, it will generally make something, right? Um, and so where you see absolutely nothing, it's because the gene is not present. And so that means that there's a lot of room for breeding, marker development, and creating new varieties. Because now you can try to go to a variety that didn't have a beta pharmacine gene and try to introduce it. It won't be the same variety, but now you've introduced new genetic diversity. You've created a new variety, and now you, you, you've you know basically down the path to a new product, right? So, so a lot of the analysis that we do is in fact to help us improve the breed, right? Um, this, is, this is really fascinating that that terpenaline band, that it's basically, if a variety has terpenaline, it's basically in that cluster for the most part. And then there's usually very little outside of that cluster. Exactly. That's exciting to me to see that potential because terpenaline is one of my favorites uh, personally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just, I've never seen this heat map before. Um, that's, that's super fascinating. So what's even further interesting about that, Jason, is that, so what we've been able to do is we've been able to identify and clone a couple of different terpenoid genes. And when we express them in vitro to determine what the profile of that gene is, and, and I'll explain that in a, in a minute, um, we see, right, that, um, that they're the different terpenoid genes have, uh, different activity levels. So there are some that are very active. There are some that are not so active and they have different product profiles. And that's, and let me get into that a little bit now. So um, terpene genes are a very interesting lot. You can have two genes that have 99% identity at the amino acid level, right? That means, you know, one or two changes at most they're generally not in the active site, but yet it'll have a completely different product profile. And the terpenaline gene was one that um, that came out, this, you know, in in, uh, in work that we did as being really interesting because um, terpenaline is generally associated with that kind of focus and 
kind of, you know, mellow focus, you know, not, not too energetic, not too sedative, but there's a reason for that. And it's all dependent on the minor terpenes that come out of the gene. So when we cloned one, uh, the, the same gene using the same primer set from two different varieties, one of them came out with a completely sativa-like profile. It had alpha phalandrine, had three carine, it had all of these terpenes that are generally associated with sativas and that are uplifting, right? So one gene had a uplifting terpenaline profile, and the other gene from the other plant had a, a more sedative terpenaline profile because it had um, borneol and some other things that were kind of, you know, tertiary, um, you know, uh, substituted alcohol uh, terpenes, right, which generally have a kind of sedative effect on you, right? So, um, and so it was fascinating to us to understand, like, you know, we finally understood, I'm like, ah, that's the answer, right? Now we know why terpenaline sometimes is uplifting and uh, with a focus and sometimes why it's kind of relaxing, right? And it, it all has to do with what comes out of that gene. And literally one or two amino acids in a gene that's 600 amino acids long or approaching the 600 amino acid longs can be the deciding factor on what you see there, right? So it was really fascinating to us as well because it, it, it opened up this whole new understanding of how, you know, how to look at oil profiles, right? Yeah. What, how, how deep do you really need to go down the rabbit hole to be able to understand what you're getting out of that that cannabis that you're you're consuming right well and, that's, you know so many people are kind of um scared of terpenaline because they associate it sometimes with a more stimulating effect whereas other you know there's sort of this argument around terpenaline um yeah. anecdotally um which is it's so fascinating to see that and then something you just said connects with a conversation i had i mean long ago when i started the podcast i had a um conversation with arno has and he was speculating he's like i he's like the more i work with this and study it it really seems like it's these alcohol you know terpenoids that are driving more of the effects that people are referring to as indica like yep. things and it's really the true terpenes that seem to be driving the more sativa like effects so it's fascinating that from a different angle you're kind of get closing in on a on the same uh, kind of characterization there yeah no it, it's fascinating in, in fact um I, I, because I was traveling while I was preparing this, I didn't have access to my full set of, of uh, data. And so I, I, don't, I don't actually have the slide where we did the experiment where you, we had the, the in vitro expression. And, and the way that was done, by the way, was we cloned the genes. Um, we put them into bacteria or into insect cells. We expressed them, isolated the protein, um, um, you know, desalted the protein, uh, made sure it refolded correctly, uh, and then and then put it in test tubes and fed it precursor. And and when you do it correctly, you get you get a product profile, and then you take that reaction and you run it on the GCMS to see what it what comes out. Um, and it was a, it was fascinating. We did that with a whole bunch of the terpene genes, and and we were able to actually start to understand the minor cannab the, sorry the minor terpenes that come along with the major right and there are some genes that will produce eight nine terpenes you'll have one terpene that's produced at like 25 or 35 percent of the, of the product profile and then you'll have all these other ones that are made 
you know, in smaller amounts to, to equal 100% of that particular gene's product profile, right? But it, it was, and again, you know, the, the one or two differences where you can actually see one gene that makes a whole bunch of stuff, right? But the, same, but the very similar gene that's changed by just one or two amino acids will make a single product. So there's a lot that we don't understand about these genes. And there's a lot of investigation that we really need to go into to be able to understand some of, of the effect-based, you know, side of, of this industry, right? So everybody who says that they want to breed for, oh, I want it uplifting, or I want this or that. Well, you can't just assume that because you have a terpinaline gene or you have a limonene gene that you're going to have the right outcome. Because if you don't know which limonene gene or which terpinaline gene and what the minor terpenes that are coming along with that are, you'll never get it right. Never get it right. Right. So, and so it is these, you know, going back to this slide here, right? Oops, sorry. So it is really, you know, so you can see limonene is one of these, these, you know, high ones, right? And 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 you know, terpinaline, um, which for whatever reason is not on this. Oh, here, the terpinol, where's terpinol? Oh, here it is. It's right? just hiding so, next to Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So um as it turns out, none of these varieties had any had terpinaline, right? So, but you you know, it's it's these guys here, right? And then these guys here, which again are these these alcohols, right? The the fentanyl, terpinol, neuralidol, right? So these are these these generally these are the guys that have a very strong effect, right? Um, on some of the effects that we feel, right? And then. Um, you know, here's the alpha phalandrine, 3-carine. So these guys here, right, are typically associated with that, that uplifting uh, kind of, you know, sativa effect, right? So it, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of information buried in these, right? And so when you go to your dispensary and they say, oh, it's got alpha pinene or it's got limonene, that's all they tell you, they're not telling you anything, right? Because these guys here will sometimes have more of an effect on the person than these guys here, even though these guys are there at about a hundred percent, you know, or a hundred times more, right? And it makes um, me think of those charts that dispensaries often have in, in them that, uh, you know, has like all of the terpenes or cannabinoids listed out with their effects and the checks, you know, what does what, um, that really glosses over any sort of, uh, place for any of this nuance or complexity it, it you know it, it really it's interesting because the cannabis industry claims to kind of come from a perspective of more holistic you know um uh kind of thinking but then we still get wrapped into this reductionist yes. isolate you know kind of way of thinking even um you know when we're trying to break down things like uh you know these complex um synergistic effects so something i just want my students to think about if you ever see those charts in stores or everything that tell you what all of these terpenes do and then you've got a butt tender that's trying to guide someone towards a product that's dominant in a certain terpene just recognize all of this complexity that's being missed by the, right. that approach right yeah. Um, and, 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 he, and here's the other dirty secret, right? So everybody would like you to believe that when you buy Blue Dream, Blue Dream is going to be the same every time. It's not, right? So the other thing that we find is, and maybe let me move forward here, um, is that depending on growing conditions, right, you will see, right, 
and, th and this is again, this is RNA. So you, I showed this before here, right? So this is the same one I showed before. Here's the expression and stuff, you know, but this is a heat map, right? And so depending on the growing conditions, right, you will see that the, that the terpenes will change in that same genetics, right? So if you grow it where there's very little perturbation, the terpene profile will be very different than if there's a lot of insect pressure or herbivory by, you know, by, you know, herbivores, or uh, if it's got very wet and there's powdery mildew, all of these things have an effect on what's being expressed in that plant. So, so having an oil profile from, and not relying on the name allows you to determine whether Blue Dream this time will give you the same effect as Blue Dream last time. If the oil profile is the same, all the way out to these little ones, yes, it will. But if it's not, you can expect a different profile. And, and, and that's a real shame because it's put a real damper in the industry because you can't necessarily use cannabis effectively as a medicine if it's not consistent and you don't know what the product profile is, right? So, so there's a lot of stuff that has to happen in order for us to really move this to the next level. And part of it is understanding the nuances of the terpene chemistry. So, so back to here. So, so now what you'll also see is that terpenes are also expressed in all parts of the plant, right? So we did the same kind of experiment we did with the, with the cannabinoids. And here you can see that in the root, there are terpenes that are heavily expressed that are not expressed anywhere else, right? Well, why is that? What the heck are terpenes doing, right? What are these terpenes doing in the root and why, right? Well, as it turns out, a number of these terpenes happen to be monoterpenes, right? And, um, and so, so the question that becomes is, well, why is a monoterpene in the soil? Right? So these are all the kind of questions that, that we can now ask and answer because we can do these kind of experiments and measure where the terpenes are actually being produced right? in terms of the different parts of the plants. And so you know, getting back to the question is how do you measure terpenes? Well, you measure it both chemically and again from the nucleic acid because you want to be able to see where things are being made. So now that you know the genes are there, well, what genes are turned on in what areas? So this tells us that we need to go look at these terpenes because these terpenes are having some role in the soil and they're probably conditioning the soil, either attracting beneficial bacteria or, or, or fungus, you know, kind of driving away the, the, the non-beneficial ones to, to help the plant do better in that environment. So, uh, and then the final way that we, we look at these things is, is by obviously by just sequencing the genes, right? And so what we're looking at here is, um, a number of different varieties that were sequenced, and this is the CBDA gene. Um, and what we found was, is so the top are all CBDA producers, the bottom are, are all THC producers, right? Now, what this tells us is, is that in CBD producers, you have, an, you have a fully intact active CBD gene, but in THC producers, right, you don't, right? And so some THC producers have an insertion, or sorry, a deletion here, right? Some CBD producers have a deletion here and here. So they were trying so hard to make sure this thing didn't produce CBD, it broke it twice, right? So <laughs> breaking it once wasn't enough, you had to break it twice. So, um, and so what this allows us to do is, is to 
to measure allelic differences in plants, right? So if you go down, if you go up and down the line, so you can see here that this guy here has a slightly different color. These are, they're all green here, but he's got, so this is an allele, right? So this is an allelic variant of this particular CBD gene, right? Okay, and you can see here, there's another allelic variant here. Allelic your, variant uh, here. your cursor disappeared. I don't know. Oh, what sorry, 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 it sorry, sorry. It came back. Sorry, so, so, so you can see, um, you know, so here, there's, there's the allelic variant here. Right. There's some allelic variants here. So this allows us to, to look at individual changes. And one of the topics we, we wanted to, to talk about was how do genes change? Right. Well, I'm going to use this 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 um, slide here to kind of discuss that. So genes change over time. Right. Um, by acquiring mutations, those mutations can cause an amino acid to change. Uh, they can cause deletions. They can cause, you know, insertions. Um, um, and uh, other ways that that you develop gene families, which is a concerted effort by the plant or the organism to acquire additional characteristics, right? And so that happens because you get what, what's called a gene duplication event. So you'll take a THC molecule or sorry gene or THC or CBD gene, and then you'll duplicate it. So now that plant will have two, right? It only needs one. It survives with one just fine, right? But now it's got two, and one is maintained as as pristine as it can be, whereas the other one, it doesn't care so much, right? So you you start to see in in these duplicated genes the accumulation of mutations, insertions, deletions, um, and and what that is is evolution happening in the gene. Right, and so you get multi-gene families, and and cannabinoid synthases are a multi-gene family. They all started with a single progenitor, and then that progenitor became THC, CBD, CBC, and then what we call now the clade C genes, which is um, a a gene a set of the Burberry Bridge genes that are undergoing a lot of evolution. They're kicking off a lot of new varieties of 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 cannabinoid synthases. And, and in fact, we, we were able to clone a number of those genes as part of our experimentation and find one that makes predominantly CBC, but it makes five different minor cannabinoids, right? And so um, mutation, duplication, right? And then and the process of evolution where, you know, if, it, if the gene is changed and it's still functional and it provides a benefit, it will be kept. And if not, you see continuing evolution happen and you end up with genes like this, where you see deletions, which this is a non-functional gene and, and as well as this. this. These are all, everywhere from here down is a non-functional CBD gene and these are all THC varieties, right? So, so um, mutation is the process of where you have a, say, an A, G, C, or T in the DNA that, for whatever reason, undergoes gamma irradiation, uh, UV irradiation, chemical, you know, change, and then so you get a, a transition or a transversion to another nucleotide. You know, an A uh, can uh, will go to a G, a C will go to a T. Um, because of their chemical structures, right? Generally, right? So, um, and then that gets fixed if the DNA repair machinery does not come along and say, oh, that's wrong when I compare it to the, the, the parent strand, you know? So sometimes you get mistakes in DNA repair that allow 
that mutation to get fixed in the population, right? And so that's essentially how genes change and how evolution occurs and why we get gene families and alternative alleles. Okay. Um, and so this is a little bit more uh, detailed example, right? So where I've actually outlined the changes, right, in the THCA synthase gene, right, where um, you have um, the, the parent is uh, variant one, you have an A, and it gives you methionine, because this is, this is the start of the gene, right? And then the variant two is, uh, it becomes a leucine, right? Uh, here you have, so this would be, um, okay, so there are different types of allelic, uh, allelic changes. Some of them are, are conservative, some of them are silent, uh, and some of them are um, more or less disruptive, right? Or, or and, and disruptive can mean a number of different things, right? So a conservative mutation, right, is where you get a change in the amino acid, but the overall polarity and size of that of amino acid doesn't change very much. Those changes tend to not give you that large of a difference, and so generally remain functional and, and, and have the same kind of kinetics. Here you have what's called a silent mutation, where you have a mutation occurs, but the amino acid doesn't change. So this nothing happens here, and you, you would never see any difference. You would see if you, you know, in the amino acid, or sorry, the protein, right? So the protein will, will look exactly the same, even though the DNA is a little bit different. Here you have a number of different ones where you have a methionine that goes to a threonine or an isoleucine which goes to an arginine, and these are non-conservative and these are highly different, right? So you have a, a, a non-charged or non-polar amino acid going to a very polar amino acid. Stuff along these lines here almost always affect the folding of that amino acid and will change the activity at or ruin the activity, right? So, so these are the kind of things that we look for in terms of how, so the changes that become allelic, these are the type of allelic changes that you can see, right? And then the way you go about determining whether or not those allelic changes had an effect is then to actually go back to the product profile. So what we've done here is we've mapped the, the changes, the amino acid changes, right? And we've looked at whether or not they've uh, eliminated the, that product, right? So one of them completely turned it off, Right, one of them reduced it, and these are the these are the high the high CBD producers, right? So you can see the high CBD producers exist up here. The um, the the low functioning CBDs uh, exist above the zero line, whereas some of them were actually knocked out completely. So so to what I've just given you is an example of how you go about looking for. Um, changes by looking at the DNA, right? You then look for the, the look at how the changes specifically affected the DNA by changing the amino acids and then determining whether or not that change affected the 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 function of that gene, right? So um, there was a lot right there and I know I'm probably running out of time. So I were there any questions before I go on to the next thing? Yes, um, um, about the, so uh, connecting sort of the cannabinoid um, genetic function with the terpenoid functioning, you know, you mentioned how one terpene gene can produce many things. Do you see that with cannabinoid genes 
that ah. um, these genes, uh, the term I've used before in class is sometimes they can be leaky. Or promiscuous, um, yes, exactly. Yes, yes, or promiscuous, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you mind commenting on that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, so uh, some of them are, right? So the classic example is CBD, right? So there is a hard line of somewhere between, I, I'm going to use a broad range. It's broader than what other people see because in our work, we've actually seen um, CBD to THC ratios higher than 24 to 28 to 1. We've actually found a 38 to 1 in one of our varieties. Wow. Wow. Um, but they're rare, right? So, yeah. um, and so the CBD gene, for some reason, has an inability to make pure product. It always makes some amount of THC. Um, and whether or not that's because of isomerization after the fact, right, or or it just spits out THC from the gene specifically, uh, we don't know yet. But this is why you always see in a CBD-rich variety some level of THC, and this is why we talk about hemp, you know, and that artificial 0.3% THC, right? Well, because of the hard and fast rule of somewhere between 25 to, you know, 35 to 1, right? Um, you're going to have a situation where if you, once you hit around 8 to 10% CBD, you're going to start seeing you're, you're already going hot over 0.3%, right? So, um, however, when we, we cloned and we, and we expressed in vitro the other cannabinoid synthases, THC, CBC, and the clade C genes, right? We found that THC does not make anything else. CBC does not make THC as literature actually says. And so we have a paper that's being uh, um, prepared right now, that's going to refute that. Um, oh, nice. um, but the clade C genes, which look like THC and CBC genes, right? But they can be distinguished from them both. They make CBC and they make other minor cannabinoids, but yet we didn't find them making THC either, right? So realistically, the THC that comes in a CBD variety comes from CBD, right? And it seems to be that only the CBD gene and the clade C genes are leaky or promiscuous. The THC gene and the CBC gene seem to be rock solid and don't make anything else, at least not, and, and, the, and these experiments were done using a mass spec, right? So we would have been able to see low levels and we saw nothing, so. Wow, that's super fascinating. Yeah, so. Very, very interesting. And um, I was gonna let you know on time, you're good. It's totally up to your, Availability oh, okay. and, and how long you have to spend time with us, but you're you're good if you want to continue. Okay, cool, sure. All right, cool. All right. So next thing is is um, what the combination of cannabinoid and terpene profiles do, and they kind of give you a fingerprint of that plant, right? So and we're going to go back and start to look at this again. You've already seen this, right? Um, and so this is basically a terpene fingerprint of that plant. And the reason why I say it that way is because when you overlay terpene profiles, right? Um, you get to see a lot of things. So this is a variety called Dutch Hawaiian. Um, and this was data that's been taken over a number of years. And you can see, right, that there are clearly two different types of Dutch Hawaiian, right? So there's you, and the reason why I say that is because these, the, the differences you see here cannot be attributed to poor handling or terpene volatilization. The reason being is that here you can see this dotted blue line, right? Right, has you know what seems to be lesser amounts of these guys, but it has more than here. So clearly, these are different genetics. 
what happens frequently in the industry, and Jason, don't laugh because I, you're going to laugh, um, is that people, when something stops selling, um, will just change the name to something else and put it back on the shelf, right? And so by having extended these extended terpene footprints, you can actually catch people doing this, right? So, um, and maybe I should have started with this. Let me go to this one first. So, so this one is exactly that example where somebody could not sell their variety. And so they named it three different things, but you can see the terpene profiles are identical other than slight differences. And these could be due to drying and whatever, right? But when you see something like this, where everything is being called Dutch Hawaiian, but clearly they have different terpene profiles and, and there's been a complete switch in some of the dominant terpenes, right? So the, here, the dominant terpene is, you know, that one and that one, but in this one, it's this one, right? So clearly they're not the same genetics, but they're both being called Dutch Hawaiian. And the reason for that is, is because people breed and because they don't understand breeding truly, most of the people who are breeding cannabis are not, do not come from true ag backgrounds, right? And so what you see is people saying, oh, I have a seed population. It was Dutch Hawaiian. So they're all Dutch Hawaiian. Well, that's clearly not the case. And this is part of the reason what I said before is that blue dream isn't always blue dream. And it's not until you do this kind of fingerprinting analysis with terpenes where you can start to get these nuances, right? And so, so, um, so here we have, you know, clearly at least two, right? At least two, if not potentially three different, um, um, different, you know, genotypes in here, right? So, um, and then here, <clears throat> they're all the same exact genotype because over this number of terpenes, you would never see this exact overlay unless they were the same exact genetics, right? So, um, so these, the importance of understanding the extended cannabinoid and terpene profiles, you know, is about getting to the bottom of, of what is the, the plant that you're looking at really trying to tell you. What, is, what does it contain? How can it be used, right? And without the information that you get from doing a more detailed analysis, it's hard to understand what cannabis you actually have in your hand, right? Now, uh, I'm going to segue into the next topic, which is how does cannabis deal with pests and disease, right? Real, and so, real, real quick, yeah, ahead, or if you if you don't mind going back real quick, yeah. an interesting question that just came up is because um, you 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 referenced the kind of differences you expect to see between something with um, common or different genetics versus the differences in terpenes you'd see from volatization or handling and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of how to reword this question. Um, what what kind of variance do you expect to see from the environmental influences that kind of, for lack of better words, change the you know the terpene profiles to some degree in concentrations versus um, you know what's fairly genetically rigid? I guess like how 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 much variance would you expect to see between things that have the same genetic profile but have been handled differently because we often talk about you know that you grow the same plants in the same room but you could end up with um, differing um, terpenoid profiles um, but obviously there's limitations to that um, so I guess uh, just a, a clarifying question on that how big of a difference do you see so you, you can see sometimes a very large difference you can actually see the predominant terpenes sometimes change 
Um, and so it's important to understand, right? So, so the DNA that you have, which contains the genes, right, is um, is a potential, right? It's right. important to think about DNA as a potential, right? Now, the actual outcome is dependent on the environment, right? So the classic, the biological math, right, is um, phenotype is equal to genotype plus environment, right. right? So if you have a radically different environment, even though you have the same genes, right, you will end up with a different phenotype because the, the, the genes that get expressed are going to be different because of the, the, the needs of that particular environment, right? And so, um, and, and I kind of touched on it before when I said, you know, if you have uh, a perfect indoor growing environment versus outdoor with lots of stress, right? And insects and temperature changes and, you know, drought or whatever, when you take a look at those two things, you will see similarity, right? But you will see vast differences in the the amounts of some things or um, what, the presence or absence of, of some things, right? And that's because, um, and, and we're going to touch on that a little bit more uh, because the terpenes are actually the immune system of the plant, right? So essentially, you know, we have our own immune system and terpenes essentially act as the immune system of the plant, right? And so depending on what's going on in the plant, you'll see um, changes in some of the lower minor ones, if it's insect pressure, um, if it's things like, you know, uh, you know, too wet and there's powdery mildew, you'll see other ones that, you know, that, that will then ramp up that might not have been involved at all in a perfect growing environment, right? So, and so um, this particular Dutch Hawaiian is a good example of, of what we see when we're seeing a, um, okay, so so let, let, me, let me say this. So the Dutch Hawaiian figure you're looking at now could be the result of one of two things. And I guess I, I, I was a little bit too flippant before when I said this is different genetics. This could in fact be, either different genetics from a related population, two different seeds from the same batch, or it could be vastly different growing environments for the same genetics, right? So, so right now, without looking at the DNA, it's hard to tell which one of those two things are, right? But this is telling us that under, if they were grown under the same conditions, there's, these are different genetics, but it could actually be, and, and again, I don't sometimes know that because the samples come in and we test them, but they don't tell us what, what went on in the grow, right? And so it is possible that that the question that was asked, you're looking at that right here. You could either, this could either be different genetics or a vastly different growing environment for the same genetics, right? Whereas this one, right, is clearly it was either the same batch of plant sent in under three different names, or it was the same genetics grown three different times and just released with three different names, right? So, um, and again, you know, without further analysis, but, 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 um, you know, the other thing that, that can happen as a, as a result of the, you know, vastly different handling or growing conditions, right, is shown here, right? So here, the volatility or the handling, so you'll see slight de decreases, right? But the overall profile, right, looks the same. And what you'll also notice is that um, it, it may not look consistent, but, you know, uh, we've done some studies where you look at the, 
um, the volatilization of terpenes during the cure, right? And some things volatilize very quickly, alpha-pinene, um, you know, myrcene, um, you know, even limiting to a certain extent. So these things tend to go away very quickly during the cure. And so if you have a lot of air exchange, if you have a lot of heat in the cure, those things blow off very, really quick and you'll see, and you see these kind of decreases here, right? They're steady state, they're, they're, they're you know, they look consistent. The amount of, the amount of decrease that you would expect over time is what you're seeing here based on the, whether it's a monoterpene or a sesquiterpene or a diterpene, right? Um, um, whereas the previous slide, right, where, where there's no way to account for this because you're not getting an even, uh, an even decrease, right? So in order for this one to have decreased this much, if it was the same, these other ones would have to, would have, to have decreased quite a bit as well, right? And so it's, it, it's apparent in the data set because you'll see, oh, look, well, if this one, if if these only decreased a little bit here, right, you wouldn't expect this one to go down that much, right? And so that tells you kind of that you're looking at a difference in either vastly different growing conditions or different genetics. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think that was perfect. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you. All right. All right. So, um, so now, um, again, how does cannabis deal with pests and disease? Well. I just mentioned that terpenes are the immune system, right? And so there are genes that um, are involved in specific types of pest resistance. And, and, and the best known family is the MLO genes, right? And so the, I, I put this paper up here if anybody's interested in looking at it. Um, the, um, the MLO genes are specific to powdery mildew and other types of, of fungal attack, right? But um, the very terpenes that we are looking for for our experience are in fact the main or the first line of defense for most insect pest and uh, and disease resistance in cannabis, right? And so um, what I've done here is, is shown uh, a few of the papers that have been, been um, done over the years of just terpenes in general, not from cannabis, right? But, you know, that... Um, the octopamine is uh, is an insect um, uh, affects insect nervous systems and it, and it, it, it does things like tells it when to drop its eggs or you know or it inhibits you know OB position and stuff like that right so um, guaiol has been found to be a naturally occurring insecticidal terpene right so that means it actually kills right it's a contact killer right so um, and so. Um, interestingly enough, if you look at the structure of some of these things, right? So these are the oct octopamines, right? Uh, and here's norepinephrine and epinephrine. So these are we, these occur in humans, right? Uh, these are what occur in, in various insects. But you can see that the structure, and these are all terpenes. So you can see the structure of terpenes here, right? Some of them look a lot like these these very crucial compounds in insects that tell them that, that, that affect their behavior. So these terpenes can bind to the octopamine receptors, and then it, it causes a inhibition of the correct action that would be triggered by that receptor, right? And so, um, you know, so terpenes then form a line of defense by either killing insects directly, by um, making them do crazy things like not dropping their eggs, run around in left-handed circle, circles, growing wings and flying away, aphids for instance. Um, um, beta-farnesine, 
is a terpene that uh, for aphids makes the next generation of aphids grow wings and leave the plant. So, so there's all sorts of ways that cannabis and other plants have found to use these compounds to help protect themselves against, you know, insect pests and other kinds of disease, right? And terpenes, in fact, we've actually also found uh, some of these terpenes are antiviral, which is actually not surprising because what they found is, you know, cannabinoids and terpenes have some antiviral activity. And, and that, that came up with the whole COVID thing a couple of years ago, right? They actually found that there are, those who took CBDA regularly had less, you know, less um, effect by COVID than others who didn't, right? And even before that, there was work that was done in 2013 with terpenes on the original SARS virus. I forget which one that, which one that was, but um, the H1N1 possibly or something like that. Um, um, but but they've known for a number of years that some terpenes are actually antiviral as well, right? So so that's essentially, you know, the toolkit that cannabis uses in order to protect itself in the environment, right? And then this last slide here uh, kind of just wraps that up um, with you know the the you know you know the terpenes that that give us the effect that we that we look for in cannabis uh, are known to do all sorts of things. Uh, in plants. So, um, and so that uh, kind of covers all the stuff that I had slides prepared for. So I wanted to just go back to the, to the very beginning here and cover some of these other things just by discussion, right? So um, we talked about, you know, the, the, how they're, the, the cannabinoids and terpenes, how they're synthesized, how they're made. Um, we talked about um, how do genes change, how are genes measured. We just talked about how genes affect pest resistance, right? So, um, so let's talk about feminized seeds. How are feminized seeds made? So feminized seeds are basically, you take a female plant, right? Uh, and then you treat it with a chemical and there's a number of different chemicals that you can use. Um, um, uh, silver, uh, silver thiosulfate uh, is one of them. Um, uh, ethylene is another one. Uh, so there's a number of different ones that you can use. And you start treating the plant, the moment it starts to flower, you start treating it with the chemical until you see the actual true flower being formed. So for, from pre-flower through the entire flower, flower cycle, right? Um, until you see the actual form of the flower. And, and so what ends up happening is, is by treatment for a number of weeks with a regular spraying of this STS chemical, you can actually force the plant to make pollen sacs instead of female flower, right? Now, because the plant is female, it only has two X chromosomes to, 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 to put into the pollen, right? So even though it can make a male flower, it can only make female pollen. And so you take that pollen and then you, you use it to breed to another female plant. And so you have an XX by XX uh, cross. And so all the seeds from that cross become, uh, will be feminized, right? So they'll all be female cross, uh, female seeds. So, so that's essentially how feminized seeds are made. It's by taking a female plant, doing what's called a reversal, right? By using a chemical, it, it tricks the plant by, by eliciting a, a different set of hormones. Those hormones will then turn the, the female flower into a male flower. And then the, the, male, the male flower pattern is then, is then followed from that point on and you end up getting pollen. And um, a, a, a sort of um, 
industry thing that a lot of people debate that um, I wanted to make sure to ask you is when these feminized seeds are made, <laughs> is it, um, how is does it that increasing? How is it increasing the amount of hermaphrodization? Absolutely. Yes. yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So for my breeding program, I, I tend to do most of my breeding with male pollen and then for final, you know, seed production that's going out into a field or that's being sold, we then do feminized breeding at that point so that you don't have a lot of, of um, tendency for the hermaphrodite to, to be propagated, right? So, uh, but people who tend to do only feminized breeding do see an increase. In fact, it's happening right now with a lot of the um, cookie strains, right? A lot of the cookie strains are, are becoming very hermy, and it's because they've been done nothing but her, but female uh, feminized breeding. So, um, okay. So um, let's talk about um, the common misconceptions about cannabis genetics and breeding. So um, one of the things. So we just talked about them. That feminized breeding is a good thing. Uh, that's a common misconception. Um, and, and um, other things too are that you know you can't the, the biggest one that I that I uh, face right now because what I do is you know stabilize seed genetics is what is what my company does, and so people in the industry there's a and you can see it on all sorts of farms that people don't believe you can make stabilized cannabis seed, and or inbred lines and. Um, it's never been done in the industry, or, or very few people have done it. But there, there are some fairly robust inbred lines. You know, if you look at things like OG Kush, right? So OG Kush has probably been inbred uh, for a number of generations. And and if you were to get OG Kush seed, then you were to pop a whole bunch of them. They would probably look all, very much alike, which means that there's a high degree of homozygosity, right? Um, and so you can, in fact, make very stable inbred lines that have a high degree of uniformity. Um, and, and, but it's not easy and it takes a long time. And that's not something that is, those are two things that don't go over well in the industry, right? Um, because of the size of the cannabis genome, which is about a billion base pairs, it's about three times smaller than the, the, the human genome. In order to get a really well-stabilized inbred line, you're looking at uh, probably 12 to 15 generations of inbreeding and backcrossing, right? So selfing or sib crossing, and then backcrossing to a parent to lock a trade in, and then more sibbing and self crossing, right? So, so that takes a long time, you know. However, you know there are tools that can make that go faster, and and so you can get two or three generations a year if you have you know the right environment, either indoor or you in Southern California with a greenhouse. So, you know, so now, you know, it's not such a daunting task. So you can, you know, it'll take four or five years, but you can get there, right? But it requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of, of mapping of traits, observation of traits, you know, growing large populations, picking out the right ones that have the, the, the best combination that you're looking for or closest to the parent one that you're looking for, and then breeding those and doing that over and over, right? So, so you can, in fact, get inbred lines and very stabilized uniform seed lots in cannabis. So that, I'd say that was probably one of the biggest misconceptions that I've faced in the industry so far. Um, and then ploidy, and why does it matter? So ploidy is generally an end game in most ag tech. When you have a very well-developed line that's inbred, 
what you do is then you make it make one of them a quadruploid and you breed it to its diploid mate and or or sister or whatever you want to call it and then you end up with a triploid seed um and and so what that does is it allows you to keep people from stealing your genetics it allows you to not worry about seeds being produced and those two things are very important right but the problem becomes that you know we've started to look at triploids in employee in the cannabis industry now before we've actually gotten to the point where we just talked about which is inbred line and stabilized seeds and so every time you make a triploid right you have to do the same kind of pheno hunting and the same kind of analysis that you would do for any other regular you know diploid line if you're if it's not stabilized and it's not a final a, a final step in your breeding program and so right now ploidy doesn't really matter other than to make seedless cannabis right so that so that you don't have to worry about pollen and, and getting seed so for that it's important but for all of the other benefits that you normally get from ploidy it's there's there's no real reason for it right now because you know we don't know we don't have um stabilized genetics that are producing you know high yielding plants yet right so so one of the things that you look for every time you do a cross is, is it a good yielder does it finish fast right well without those things being locked in the genetics every time you do a triploid variety you have to now go look at okay which one of these triploids that we just made is worth keeping right and so we're, we're a little bit with the cart before the horse in 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 the cannabis industry for ploidy because ploidy is typically an end game scenario in a breeding program because you've you've already found out what genes you need to have triploid to make the plant better because some genes if you have triploid will make the plant worse right so um so there's a lot of work that goes into it and unfortunately it hasn't been done in the cannabis industry yet so i would say other than for making seedless cannabis which is actually the lazy man's game right if you have good stable genetics that are not hermy you, and, and you keep males away, you don't get seeds anyway. And so it's kind of one of those things where it, it, it's a tool that helps get over a hump that was hard to get over because people just keep wanting to breed feminized seed. So, and that's, and that, that last is my opinion. So you don't take it with a grain of salt. So. No, I think that was a great explanation. Um, Cause that's my understanding too. I mean, kind of coming from a broader um, I, mean, I wouldn't say my background is ag, but natural products and, and, you know, I'm, that's what I'm accustomed to is, is you, yep. you use that to kind of cap off the end. Once you've got the plants you want, they're mm -hmm. stable, they're solid. Then you're getting into trying to make mm -hmm. triploids so that you're not having viable seeds. You're getting into the realm of uh, a big realm of like IP sharing and preparing for like debuting this, you know, these genetics to the world and kind of protecting them. Um, have you run into going back to the misconceptions and how it relates to polyploidy? Have you run into this situation where when people see um, fasciated plants in the field, they often point to that and say, "Oh, that's a sign of polyploidy," or they're trying to do polyploidy yeah. experiments? And that's a yeah. I don't know if anyone in the class has ever run into that on social media or something, but I've I've seen that over and over and over again. Yep. Anytime someone posts a picture of a canvas flower that looks strange in any way, mm. um, they'll point to that and say, oh, yeah. they must be doing polyploidy experiments. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I will say, so so that football looking flower, the fascia, the, 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 the classic example. So that can be from 
polyploidy, but it sure, can also yeah. be from a bacterial infection, right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, so different things can cause that. So, um, and I've seen people say, oh, if you get the, the leaf variegation is mm -hmm. polyploidy. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, it could be a mosaicism where you have of uh, any number of things where you have, right. um, you know, um, uh, a lot, you know, you, you, you get expression of, of one or more different genes differentially because of, right. of whatever right. in the plant. Right. So, 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 um, there are, however, naturally occurring polyploids, like, so a very, very well-known variety, um, uh, Mac one, right. Which, um, is, is in fact a partial polyploid, right? It's not a complete polyploid, but it's a po partial polyploid, polyploid, right? So, and, which explains a lot, right? So because, because traditionally people who've been trying to breed with that have had very, very little success, right? And the stuff that comes out of those, those, those breeding programs tends to look like one of the parents and, and, and not what you would expect, right? So, um, and so, you know, and that happens because a lot of the, of the, C that you get mm -hmm. is is aborted early because of that partial polyploidy, right? So, um, in fact, and, and this and before I found out it was a partial polyploid, I was trying to breed with Mac one myself, and ended up, you know, it was the weirdest thing. So I had had twelve different moms outside. I I bred them all with the same male. Eleven of the moms gave me tons of seed, great looking seed. Mac one gave me like one tenth the number of seed. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So like a one tenth of the seed was was so one tenth number of seed and then 10 percent of that seed was <laughs> yeah. was was actually viable. Ninety percent of the seed was the white aborted seed. And I was like, what? what? And then I read that. Oh, yeah. Matt, you know, uh, Dark Heart had actually put out they had done some polyploidy studies and they had put out uh, that, hey, Mac wants a natural natural existing, you know, partial polyploid. And, that you know, the the, the bells and all. Now I get it. Yeah. Yes, right. So. Right, so. um but, all these but, little white germs make sense. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, but but realistically, you know, I mean, you know, if I would say if we were further down the line and we had a better mm -hmm. understanding of the of the genetics of the cannabis plant and we had more inbreeding and more stabilization, I'd say polyploidy is a way to go because we would understand what genes are necessary for increased cannabinoid content or increased yield or, or all these other things. Right now, there's so much unknown. It's probably just as big a waste of time as anything else so yeah and um something that is um sort of more or less novel to the industry so it gets people excited when they hear about it um but it's kind of one of these things like a lot of things where when you start talking about practical applications it's uh yeah we still have a long way to go oh, and yeah. uh, the excitement's kind of yeah ahead of things um well that was that was great um I, I'm going to ask if there are any other questions here, but also don't want to keep you too long. I know we've we've gone over time, oh. but um, this has been a, a great presentation and you've covered um, such a wide breadth of topics that all, you know, come back to this core issue. How do we measure these things? How do we figure out what they're doing and how do we use that information to make practical um, decisions about how we move forward with breeding the plant? and trying to get out of it whatever we're we're um, trying to get out of it so um yeah i really appreciate the uh the energy that you put into this and the all of the the figures that you shared um were super helpful um on a number of levels of being able to visualize um a lot of these very i mean this is very complex yeah um stuff i mean even just thinking about the biomolecular pathways and zooming out and zooming out and zooming out and realizing you know, just how complicated all this stuff is. We oversimplify it when we talk about it and 
you know, yeah. or teaching about it and everything, but these are very complex um, concepts. Yeah. And any of you in class that are like, yeah, I may have understood about a third of, of what was just said, like, don't, don't feel too bad because it is a, there's a lot of um, yeah. depth and things to unpack here. And, um, and we'll continue to talk about a lot of the, um, the points that Reggie's brought up in this, in this talk. It all connects to kind of where this course is wrapping up over the next couple of weeks, which is what does the frontier of cannabis science look like? What are the pressing questions that we have that haven't been answered yet that we're trying to answer? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this was, this was awesome, Reggie. Thanks so much for participating and being willing to give us so much of your time and, and energy and your great attitude. It's always great to meet up with you and have you involved. No, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate it for me, you, you bring me on. I, I will say this is a closing statement, right? So it's important to understand Right. And the reason why I went through those biochemical pathways is because, you know, it's important to understand that, you know, this is an exercise in, in energy and carbon flux management. Right. So yes. so literally. Right. You have to look at this plant as a biochemical factory. Right. And, you you know, people want 50 percent or 40 percent THC. Well, you know, this is a reality. Right. So you know, already we're hitting 30 percent and that's 30 percent of the dry weight of the mass of the plant. 30% of all of its energy went into making this compound, right? Or, you know, or, 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 or 40 or 45%, if you or uh, closer to 40%, if you consider cannabinoids and terpenes together, right? So, right. so that's, a, that's a hell of a lot of energy and time, right? And carbon that is being fixed from various sources to go into these pathways to go there. And so it's important to understand, right, that, that this is in fact a, you know, kind of closed loop system, right? Energy, energy, and, and materials in product out and there and there is a finite limitation and and you and you have to understand that a lot of these things going on um if if they're pushed any further or if you make changes need to pull from other places for instance right the quest for high thc right mm -hmm. well you know, I hope I hope by what I showed that that nexus point where GPP goes to terpenes and to cannabinoids, right? So you you have a problem here, right? So if GPP is the precursor and you want to make high THC, well, what's got to suffer, right? By definition, the terpenes that come from GPP have to suffer unless you can find a way to push more GPP out of the plant, right? And so so you know everybody wants oh you know. 35% THC. Well, guess what? If you have 35% THC, you expect to have very little in the way of monoterpenes, right? Yeah. It, yeah. You, they can't coexist. It just can't happen, right? But you can have that much cannabinoid if you go with sesquiterpenes, right? Well, the sesquiterpenes are the ones that knock you out and put you on your ass, <laughs> right? So, so, so why do a lot of very high testing THC plants make you couch lock? Well, there's the answer, right? Like right there, right? So, um, so, so it's important to understand, right, that, you know, that this plant, it's, it's a, it's, it is in fact a closed loop system and we have to understand how that system works in order to get the best out of it. So, no, absolutely. That was such a great, um, uh, a great thing to, to cap off there and, and, uh, to, to piggyback on that, you know, you always have to consider whatever you push the plant to do you're changing other things and you're affecting how that plant can adapt and survive in its growing environment. And so yeah. by pushing THC levels up, you may be making it more susceptible to certain um, pests and pathogens because you, it doesn't, it, like Reggie said, the terpenes are 
the immune system. It's the way it communicates with the environment. Chemical ecology is a fascinating area yep. of study. Um, and you're, you know, you're essentially saying, okay, you don't have those defenses anymore, or those, um, pow- those sort of superpowers anymore, because we just want THC. Um, well, I, you know what? I, I'm really glad you said that because uh, I, I meant to say it and I didn't, right? But the reality is, right, is that, you know, um, you, you, well, I mean, how do I want to say this? Um, the, 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 the lack of, I just lost my train of thought there. Never mind. I, I blew out, it just blew out of my head. I, I, it happens Trying to rephrase it, I, I lost completely where I was going. Um, <laughs> it's totally okay. Um, you're, you are me. That that happens to me literally multiple <laughs> times a day. Um, no, but it, it was it was really important though. What, what, what on, you... on on the note about um, driving THC and changing the plant's ability to adapt oh, and survive. Right. So yeah. So thank you. So the majority of of popular varieties that we see in the dispensaries today would never survive outdoors. Never. Yes. Right. So that's the point that I wanted to make. So yes, yes. And an excellent point. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> and some of these lessons, unfortunately, producers are learning the hard way. Yeah. Um, because they're they're realizing there's so much more complexity to growing cannabis and breeding cannabis. And I also wanted to say I'm glad you made the note about the inbred lines, because that's another one of these things that there's a lot of internal argument about. Um, in the industry, uh, particularly, you know, among cultivators and breeders over whether um, there are or aren't inbred, stabilized inbred lines um, for cannabis yet. Some people, uh, a lot of people like to boast that they've done it um, because they're selling genetics and, you know, yeah. that's, a, <laughs> that's yeah. there's an advantage to that. But um, I hope that you understand from what Reggie's shown you today that there are ways to actually um, look at that and measure yeah. it, quantify it, and be able to back those kinds of claims up. And um, stabilized IBLs are, um, yeah, quite rare in cannabis. Cannabis is just, uh, right now, commercial cannabis, it's a whole soup of, you know, these polyhybrids that just uh, people have been playing around with. And some of them, you know, they've been somewhat stabilized to a degree. Um, but, you know, um, I, t- in my opinion, technology and understanding and just kind of what people want out of cannabis is all coming together to finally provide breeders with the resources they need to get to where they've been saying they want to go. Um, And it's, and it's really like the past five or 10 years that like, this has really come together in a serious way. For cannabis, it's probably less. So it wasn't until the advent of the first SNP chip, right? Right. You know, right. And so we, we just actually built our own that was specifically focused on being able to identify heterozygosity and monitor heterozygosity and, and, and homozygosity specifically for creating inbred lines, right? So, nice. so now we've yeah. built a tool that, you know, I mean, and it, it's, it's a, I, I should have included a, a figure of it. Um, um, but basically what it is, it's, you know, we, we use, we have three versions of it. We have a hundred SNP version, we have a, a, a 3000 SNP version, and then we have a 10,000. And SNP version. explain what a SNP is real quick, just in case anybody. Oh, okay. There. So, um, it's a single nucleotide polymorphism. And if you look, uh, if you remember back to when I was showing you the the DNA sequence and I was pointing to the places where there were different colors, right? So any any change from the consensus, so you you look at a a bunch of varieties and they have an A, all the varieties have an A in that spot. And one of them has 
a G. Well, that's an allelic difference, and that's a single nucleotide polymorphism. So you have a single change at a single, you know, you have a change at a single nucleotide, right? That that creates a difference and it gives you basically the, it's the basis for allele, allelic variation, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and so basically, what we do is over the course of you know um, the the various size blocks that we use, we you know we can look at oh, so this set of DNA from these chromosomes all came from the mom because it, it looks like the mom, and these come from the dad because it looks like the dad, and these are these are the hybrids where there was you know we got one allele from the parent from the mom, one allele from the dad, right? So. And so it allows you to, to actually do directed inbreeding or outcrossing, you know, depending on what you're trying to go for. So, so you can either increase your diversity or minimize your diversity to create inbred lines. But again, these are all tools that are being created now in the last few years so that the cannabis industry can join the larger ag tech sector. So, Yep, absolutely. And, and with that, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to see um, the continued work that, um, that you're doing because... Um, like I said, and I, I just will repeat, I mean, this is all really, I mean, you're really looking into the frontier of cannabis science. Um, like Reggie said, this is like last three years or so that um, some of these things are happening. Um, so keep your eye out for some of this stuff. And um, if any of you are cultivating, thinking about breeding or interact with breeders or anything like that, make sure they're paying attention um, to this stuff, because um, if they're not, um, it will definitely be a disadvantage Um in the coming future um, as the game of, of cannabis breeding cultivation really changes in some big ways and gets more sophisticated, more directed, um, and more, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be more accountability. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these things, changing names and swapping, you know, getting away with, with uh, fraud in the cannabis industry, um, just like across the entire natural products industry, um, that is getting harder and harder um, with uh, genetic tools that are available to, to watch for that sort of thing. It takes a while to kind of get the profiles mapped and figure out the patterns that exist um, you know, throughout the genome and everything. But once you start to see all of that, you can really start to do monitoring and quality control in a way that's never been possible before. So um, like you, I easily ramble. So I'm going to cut myself off there um, and just say thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>